Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors, Take a Walk, and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. And starting off, this is a podcast of lies, because we did not take a walk or a run. We are terrible, lazy people. But we are having coffee. That's what it should be. Two pastors have coffee and make a podcast, because whether we walk, run, or do nothing, the coffee is non-negotiable. We are going to have coffee. That's true. That's true. Too late, though. We've already started our world domination. We can't handle a rebranding. So what is astonishing you? Yesterday, I attended an event um, called, what was the title? Um, Coordinated Services Day. Coordinated Services Day. I know not a very um, exciting uh, title for an event, but basically um, nonprofits, some hospitals, uh, some government agencies got together in a McDonald's parking lot on the corner of Sugar Creek Road and um, Highway 85 here in Charlotte, which is a, a neighborhood that, that is um, struggling. Um, it's across the street from several hotels uh, where you know a number of families are living uh, just because of the economic realities and housing realities of our city. And so these various organizations came together uh, in this McDonald's parking lot, set up tents, set up mobile health units, and shout out to the manager, owner of this McDonald's because they endured a traffic and parking nightmare. Um, and they were very gracious, very kind, but there were maybe 20 tents, 20 organizations, about two or three mobile health units all in this one parking lot. And um, people giving out uh, flyers uh, with their various services, but not only giving out flyers, like offering people in need things they are in need of, right. uh, food, clothing, mental health services, um, health screenings. And um, so I was invited to this event by one of our elders who, in, who attended the last one last year. And I'm going from, I went from tent to tent, just introducing myself to people. And I was astonished by how eager folks were to have a conversation with me because I'm a pastor. Mm -hmm. um, usually, that is not the case. Um, as a matter of fact, I left one tent, and I was, I was walking away, going to another part of this gathering, and um, a, a man uh, ran after me, called after me, and said, hey, I heard you talking to the folks over there. I heard you were a pastor. I need to talk to you. And he represented um, a, a health organization in the city. So we're, we're always looking to partner with churches. Churches are difficult to partner with. Churches are just kind of doing their own thing mm -hmm. um, uh, in, in these times. And, you know, we, we the church, can be so um, focused on what we've lost during this mm -hmm. season that we are missing the opportunity to serve our neighbors. And I left with a deep conviction, well, first of all, just deep admiration for what these groups are doing. I mean, they are truly serving the most vulnerable with very little. I talked to one lady and I asked, um, you know, where, where's your where's your office? And she's in my office. My office is my kitchen table. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're doing so much with so little. Mm -hmm. And I 
couldn't help but think of that place in Matthew 25 when Jesus said, I was hungry and you gave me something yeah. to eat. I was naked and you gave me clothes. I was in prison and you came to visit me as you did it to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it unto me. And I, I left that event thinking the church really needs to get into the game. We, we are, we're so internally focused that it is, um, frankly, it's, it's a bit embarrassing at times. Yeah, I think it's really, um, it's a spiritual challenge that is really healthy for us to confront, which is we often, and I'm speaking particularly about um, my spiritual home, the PCUSA, we have this historical memory that none of, many of us didn't directly experience of being centralized leaders in our communities. And so every time the church did something, they did something, they put it on, they controlled it, it happened on their campus with their people, and then the community flocked in and was fed or served or whatever, and then back out again. And I think that a lot of times we are are waiting um, for the resources to be able to do that kind of ministry again. And we're telling ourselves that since we can't do what we used to do, that means we can do nothing. Um, and that it's not our fault that people just aren't coming to our churches and people are going to brunch and people are whatever. Instead of recognizing that, you know, the church is never supposed to be the center of its own story. The church, the center of our story is supposed to not be our institutions or the church itself, but Jesus. And so we're being invited to figure out ways to serve God where we are, not where we wish we should be or where we think we should be or where we wish we were. And frankly, our opportunities to serve now are on the margins and to partner with other people and to not be at the center and to be filling gaps and to be showing up in ways that give other institutions glory and to be open to the fact that God would be moving, not through giving us newspaper headlines, um, not through efficient movements where 500 people get to know how wonderful our church is, but through personal connections with people that don't get celebrated or frankly noticed by anybody except that person and the Holy Spirit. And I think, you know, our inability to believe that God is leading us to the margins and leading us to be people who um, lift up and support others as opposed to our own selves, like that's really hindering us. And so, yeah, I think that that's a really, I mean, just a really powerful thing to say. And frankly, a lot of the things that other organizations are doing are things that the church has refused to do. So, yes. you know, God is a God of justice. And so if the church refuses to be involved in the work of justice, then God doesn't stop. God's spirit isn't thwarted. It just goes and leads other people and fills other people and always has. And so if we won't do the work of justice, that work will keep being done, just not by us. If we won't do the work of challenging the power and principalities of white supremacy, God will keep getting that work done. It just won't be through us. And so I think to be able to recognize like, hey, we gotta, we've got to follow where the spirit leads us and not sit in our ever shrinking kingdoms and demanding that God show up and magnify us through our plans. Or we think we're really big news when we say, well, glorify yourself, God, through our plans. And God says like, no, <laughs> you, you, you allow yourself to be led 
to a place of unfamiliarity and risk and um, backlash. Yeah, next week, two elders and I are going to visit a woman named Jeanette who runs a ministry um, to um, the, the kids, for the kids um, in the hotels in, in that neighborhood. There are three hotels. And she has very she has this tiny office space that she's renting in this office building. And we're thinking, okay, we got space. Right. And plenty of it. Right. We're just down the street, like right. a mile and a half. What if right. what if we partnered with her right. to minister with right. these kids? Right. And I think just partnerships and partnerships that are not managed or um, instigated through the denomination. Like, I think particularly the Peace USA, which has a strong institution that still has a lot of power and money, still has a lot of money for anything and power in and of itself. I mean, we just feel like, oh, everything that God is doing, God is doing through the Peace USA and people affiliated with it. We're just so myopic and short sighted. And we're we're choosing to be left out of what the Holy Spirit is doing. Yeah, you know, on Sunday, we had a fantastic guest preacher, Nicole Thompson, and we had a number of guests. I, I, I think um, maybe a third of the people in worship were not members of the mm-hmm. church. And during the coffee hour after worship, the number one thing our guests asked me about was our ministry outreach the homeless that was that was the thing they wanted to hear more about and it's made me um it's reminded me that in this season folks outside the church don't really care how good your music is or your preaching is for that matter because any day any day of the week they can go online and hear good music and hear good worship i mean it matters it should be good but People are not knocking down the door to get in to hear music and right. preaching. But if people want to serve, if people want to help their neighbors, they've got to leave home and they've got to find a place to connect with others to do right. that. And the church could be that place. Right. I mean, the only thing that the local church has to offer that people cannot get online to their exact taste and specifications at their exact convenience. The only thing we have to offer is our physicality, is our gathering together and relationships and our opportunity to serve in ways that people can't on their own. And I think it doesn't matter what we believe if we're not serving you know, people who already agree with us are like, yeah, we already agree with you. We don't have to come together and agree with you in person. And people who don't agree like whatever but to be able to do something that is just beautiful and startling um and makes people wonder like why are these people serving in this way that's that's our evangelism and that's what we have to offer and you know it's matthew 25 it's what the lord clearly was saying all along so um yeah so i think that's is it in Amos where the Lord says, "I hate, I despise your festivals, the noise, the noise of, of your, your music, yes, and your yes. your incense offends but my nostrils." Roll, right, yeah. roll down, yeah. yeah that uh, yeah. that we think that all we need to do is make the biggest worship circus in town, and the Lord has never been in that. Um, and the Lord is about using imperfect, limited, weak people in process as vessels of what is not them 
to glorify the Lord, the Lord who is mighty and comes down low and is about the work of shalom and is accomplishing it, not through us, but in spite of us. And, you know, the weaker and more broke down, the better, because that's how it is not the institution, but the Lord who gets the glory. Yeah. So so what's astonishing you? Well, you know that it is a perpetual struggle for me to focus my astonishment on something that is good and not bad. And I'm just um, hmm. failing in this season. Hmm. <laughs> so uh, here's what's astonishing me. I love, really, really, really love going to the library, the seminary library, and pulling a huge stack of commentaries down and just reading and listening and learning from biblical scholars and reading biblical criticism. And I, I find it obviously um, just, it deepens and stretches and um, expands what I can see and um, what the text reveals to me. And frankly, you know, there, there are people who just, you know, they speak Aramaic and I don't, and they speak Hebrew and I don't really, and Greek, and they've studied, you know, the, the cultures. And so they can help you see um, what a metaphor, all the nuances of a metaphor or, you know, where a particular place is or how it's related to another place in scripture or what, just things that I don't, I don't need to figure all that stuff out on my own because you have these scholars who, who, who know this. And so I, I'm just, I'm so grateful. Um, and I'm like, my kids make fun of me all the time because basically easily half of my Instagram is just pictures of big stacks of books of me at the library. Cause I just, I really love it. It is such a privilege. And frankly, you know, I don't even know how obviously pastors do create amazing sermons without going to a seminary library every week. But I'm just saying, I personally don't know how I would do it. Like I am so deeply grateful. I am such a better preacher and spiritual leader because I have access to this treasure. And, <laughs> and um, it's so funny, you know, people are talking about decolonization a lot. And I know that that is sometimes like a, a, a a, a phrase um, that people don't understand, you know, what does that mean? You know that nations like Great Britain colonized um, places in on the continent of Africa or in the United States. So like we understand how nations can colonize territories. But when it comes to talking about decolonizing art or decolonizing um you know, cooking, you think like, what, how, how does that make sense? Like there, there's not colonies in different ways of um, creating. Right. And so I, I think it can be hard to understand what that is and what people are talking about. And then it's easy for people to just go, Oh, this is just woke ism <laughs> run amok. Right. Um, but so, so the idea behind decolonizing different learning disciplines is, um, is recognizing that a lot of the ways that scholarship has happened has been grounded in an often unarticulated um, foundational truth that only certain people know how to understand important things. So um, certain people's insights are valuable and valid, and other people's 
are not unless the certain people whose insights we already believe are valued and valid agree that the other people's insights are are also equally valid and valuable. And so for a long time, um, when it comes to how you decorate a space or what counts as art or what counts as music or what how you read scripture, <laughs> there have been certain people who have historically been either the leaders or the um, protégés or um, what what's that called when a rich person has a uh, a Patreon mm-hmm. <laughs> um, of of very powerful leaders of these nations that tended to have physical geographic colonies. These people also tended to be the people who funded the universities and read and approved the scholarship or the art or the cuisine. Um, And so not only were physical places colonized, but ways of human life were um, in many ways controlled by the same groups of people, right? So much as I love and draw deep and sincere value from biblical criticism and biblical scholarship, it is also true that the people doing that scholastic work are funded by people who have had historical power. And literally, the people who are doing biblical criticism are often funded by the people who are not only colonizing space, but selling human beings. And so there's this deep vested interest in, tell me what the Bible means, but in a way that does not challenge the righteousness of my own self-interest, right? And so people who, like us, who were fortunate enough um, to to have years of higher education, um, you know, went through these systems and and got a lot of good stuff, but also along the way, an idea that, only people who have been trained in these institutions and only people who have graduated with degrees from these institutions, those are the only people whose read of scripture is valid and can be trusted, right? So um, this is really interesting and still is just very apparent in the way that people talk about scripture. So for example, and I was just astonished and laughing at like how, how, baldly visible it was this past week I was preaching on the burning bush and um and actually scratch that it was two weeks ago I was preaching on the feeding of the 5,000 and so I'm reading different scholars and these are different modern scholars and they are um drawing connections between different parts of scripture and it's so interesting that you know, one scholar I was reading in this story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 is he's he's in a place, he's doing ministry, the disciples come to him and say, send these people away, it's getting late, they need to eat, go send them to the villages so they can buy themselves food. And Jesus says, no, you give them something to eat. And they saying like, well, we don't have anything and bring me what you have. And what they have is um, five loaves and two fishes and Jesus prays and he asks the disciples to distribute the food and and it's abundantly more than enough. And they pick up 12 baskets of leftovers. And so I'm reading the scholars talk about this. And one of the scholars in particular, they're they're saying, um, you can definitely read this text and you should be reminded of God providing manna in the wilderness for the Hebrew people um, on their way to the promised land. Um, But you cannot think that this story 
is a foreshadowing of the Last Supper because there are fish. <laughs> and so do not think that in this moment, this is a story about meeting God at a, at a table and, and God making abundant, sustaining life available for all of God's people. And I just thought it was so interesting um, that I was reading a modern critic who actually used the phrase, do not think that this story is a foreshadowing or is connected to Jesus's last supper and the teaching therein. And I thought like, how astonishing that someone who is a biblical scholar feels that he has the authority to tell people what thoughts they are or are not allowed to have. Do not think this. And I think that is just an, that is an example and a really blatant one of the colonization of biblical criticism. And for someone not to recognize that, wow, this is what we believe is holy scripture. It is a manifestation and a revelation of that points to God. It is not God, but it points to God. It reveals God. And to think that we as humans have or should have the ability to definitively say, hey, here's what this means, and that we as humans would have all the knowledge necessary to be able to draw absolute lines about what this can and cannot mean, and that we should have the authority to tell people that they're not allowed to see a connection in the text because we don't see it. I mean, it's just an astonishing thing. Not to mention that, like, of course, being a white man who is an, you know, grew up with upper middle class privilege and, is and has been educated through all these institutions, of course, it's going to shape the way that you read these stories. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as you know that. The Lord is revealing things to you in scripture and things that are valid and good and meant to be shared. And also that the Lord is concealing and limiting your ability to uncover the fullness of scripture on purpose so that you will discover God's design for the interdependence of the body of Christ, right? And so to say, I cannot fully understand the scripture unless I read it in context and in community with people who are part of the body of Christ, whose life and wisdom is different from my own, that it's not possible for me to uncover the fullness of the meaning of scripture. And um, it's really important that I know that because otherwise I'm prone to sin and error and, um, destructiveness so yeah um, I think I've told the story um, before um, I remember being in in seminary and the first day of preaching class we received the syllabus and um, I remember looking through the books we were to read and um, none of them were black authors like in a preaching class like I'm reminded of um, that, well, that place. Can I just yeah. point that out? I mean, one of the reasons that is, is because a lot of, a lot, not certainly not all, but many of the most astonishing and powerful and anointed black preachers don't have credentials 
from the universities who are publishing the preaching books. So when the experts teach you how to preach, what they're saying is this actual experience that people have being fed and healed and led by the word of God through these channels of these great black preachers, it's not valid. You can't learn anything from that. You can only learn from us because we have been credentialed and validated through these institutions. And so we function as if God only works through these institutions and anything that happens outside of these institutions is, you know, we're... uh, Which is is one reason why, you know, I shied away from um, PhD studies in theology because requires you... To learn German, as German. If, as if, <laughs> as if, the great mysteries of God are locked away in the German language. Right, and but I mean that is again the the uh, the manifestation of the colonization of theology. Why do we force people still to this day to learn German? It's because we think that the German thinkers, Art Tillich and Luther, they're the only valid people speaking about theology. We don't ask people to learn Spanish. We don't ask people to learn any indigenous languages because we think that there is no scholarship going on in the way that those people see and talk about God. And they don't, it doesn't need to be normative or formative for people who practice theology. Well, in 1884, yeah, that was the year, 1884, there was something called the Berlin Conference. Uh, during that time, um, various European countries were beginning to um, come into conflict with each other over um, the colonization of Africa. They wanted land, they wanted resources, and um, the Chancellor of Germany said to other European countries, let's not fight, right? So they gathered in Berlin, and they decided how they would carve up the continent, and Part of the strategy for the colonization was let's make the Africans think that everything that is European is good and everything that is African is bad. Mm -hmm. And that is that is part of what we mean by decolonization, right? There there is this deep-rooted thinking. There is a long history of an effort to um, whitewash African black history. And that that idea that everything European is good and everything that comes from other continents is bad is so essential. Or at least inferior. Right. And it's so essential to condoning the violence because then you can say, well, actually, I am a righteous person when I burn down your house and when I force you into slavery and when I rape your women and when I like steal your children, I am actually a savior because I'm delivering you from this inferior, primitive, demonic culture that you're caught in and I am elevating you and civilizing you so that you can be more like me. And it requires teaching people and everyone, I don't mean just indigenous people, but also white people, it requires teaching them not to believe their own eyes and their own experiences so that you know, well, if someone came to my house and stole what belonged to me and perpetrated violence against me and my family, I know that that would be evil. But this theology 
teaches me that actually when I do this, it's the Lord's work. And it, it requires that kind of philosophy in order to get people to sign on to be a part of it. Yes. And it also allows um, for the acceptance of portions of European pagan culture and history. So for the most part, Christians around the world have accepted Christmas trees that comes from pagan Germany. We've accepted um, mistletoe and holly. <laughs> we've accepted four-leaf clovers, <laughs> right? And, and we, we have, we've sort of baptized those things as okay. But if it's, if it's a mask from Africa, if or it's if something it's from Haiti. Praying then, to your ancestors, yes, that's demonic. Right? Right. Even though um, there's a we 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 love the saints in in the Catholic Church, right? But when it comes to African ancestors, well, no, that's just paganism, and we have to. Well, and who decides who the saints are? Right. It's the people who control the institution that is Rome. And so I think it's not to say that nothing good happens from inside these systems because God is everywhere. But it is to say when you you have to just see it, and then once you see it, you can start um, separating the wheat from the chaff, right? And and so, um, well, I'm reminded of that place in scripture that says, "My people perish for lack of knowledge," mm -hmm. and so there is um, an intentional denial of knowledge that comes out of certain parts of the world, mm -hmm. and I, and I would say primarily out of the African continent. Well, and I think it's especially important that somehow we've gotten the idea, completely a historical idea, that the cradle of Christianity is Europe as opposed to the Middle East. And, and we've gotten everyone accepting, or many people accept, that Africa, quote, became Christian when it was colonized, when in reality, Christianity spread to the continent of Africa way, way, way before it spread to the continent of Europe. And that just, you know, Paul says in the letter to the Romans that the gospel is power. And it is. And I think people really recognized that they needed the power of the gospel. They needed to um, blaspheme that in order to crosswash <laughs> their acts of, of violence. So, um it's just really important to be able to ask those questions. But I just was so, <laughs> I was so offended because, you know, I'm, I, because it's so deeply in me that when I read these books and someone says to me, like, don't think, don't think. that this is about the Last Supper, my first instinct is like, oh gosh, thanks for telling me. I almost, <laughs> I almost thought that. <laughs> and I think for a long time when I would go to the library, I really did go so that I could learn what I was allowed to say because you come up through the system and you are taught really explicitly like it is your responsibility not to lead people into error and so you can't trust your own thoughts you can't trust your own understanding you can't trust your own experience with God you need to go to these experts and find out if how you read scripture is valid now I think it's really important that we work out our faith with fear and trembling period so I'm not saying chuck the scholars I'm just saying if you put the scholars in this place of unquestioned authority and final then you've turned them into an idol and you've actually neglected to do the thing that I think we are quite rightly encouraged to do in seminary which is to always 
um, to always read scripture from a posture of humility and questioning and, and seeking an understanding that would challenge us. And so I think, you know, I'm all, I'm going to continue to go to the library because I learn so much, but I'm also aware that um, when people tell me what I'm allowed to think, that's garbage. <laughs> yeah. There's a book um, that um, I read in seminary. Um, it was an independent study. Um, I was doing a, a kind of a survey of, of African-American theology, and there's a book uh, entitled Cut Loose Your Stammering Tongue. And one scholar went through um, slave narratives and spirituals looking for the theology of slaves. And um, it, it's, it, it's just a small paperback, but it's astonishing to see the, um, the clarity of their theological thinking, the, 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 the power, the, um, how they were able to very much separate their understanding of God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and church from what they were being told yeah. by uh, slave masters. And they had just a very, like in that, that spiritual, um, I got shoes, you got shoes, all God's children got shoes. When I get to heaven, going to put on my, put on my shoes, going to walk all over God's heaven. Like we've, we've heard that. Um, but the twist of that song of that spiritual is heaven, heaven, Everybody talking about heaven ain't going. And so it was a way for slaves to kind of, you know, look at each other singing that song going, okay, you know, these people saying they are masters talking about Jesus. Uh, we don't know if they are. Well, we don't know. <laughs> we are declaring they are not walking in the way of Jesus. Right. Um, and so uh, I, I would recommend that book, Cut Loose Your Stammering Tongues. And I think it's just so interesting if you're in the academy which i also feel very grateful to have been delivered from but it's so interesting like people who are doing phd work and trying to earn that credential the what they need to do is go do primary source research so they need to go um, out into communities and uncover historical documents that were not valid in the in the mainline thought and then do research upon it. And then that's how they enter in. So it is this, this process of, um, you know, colonizing certain people's thoughts and understanding that this was not valid until I came in and I studied it. And I decided that this is how it fits in with the, with the larger um, central, um, tr you know, institutional wisdom. And then once I do that, I, as the scholar, own these revelations, not the people who actually were the primary source, but it's me coming in and studying it that gives it validity. So the whole system, I mean, it, it is literally still to this day colonization. And and I think, I mean, whatever, we, we need to do that. I'm, I'm glad that people are now starting to say, hey, what truths have indigenous people already have in our um, our standing as authorities is incomplete and invalid without it. I'm glad it's happening. I just think it's important that we need to see that in really 
profound ways, it's still reinforcing that same dynamic. Instead of Indigenous scholars coming and saying, like, you know, Indigenous people, which, I, you know, saying, like, I, I am saying that here's my criticism of Martin Luther, right? Like, no one is wondering whether Martin Luther has anything important to say. But the reality is, he shaped the tradition in ways that were helpful and in ways that are unhelpful. And people who were raised inside of institutions that were validated by Luther's theology are not going to be able to do that work in a critical way like outsiders can and will. And I think that's why, to me, you know, the work that God is doing in the local churches is the, really the heart of the kingdom because we're the ones who are on the edges living it out and saying it's fine for someone in a university somewhere to write an article that says you're not allowed to connect these two stories. But, but for us in this community, this isn't an academic exercise and we do, um, or, or we allow the spirit to lead us there. So, um, anyway, I was, well, that leads me to what I'm thinking about this week, <laughs> which is, um, the governor of, the state of Florida, Ron DeSantis, has uh, announced that he is blocking the implementation of an AP high school course that is a college-level um, class for high school students uh, in African-American studies because he says it lacks educational value. And it's illegal. And it is illegal. So listen, <laughs> here we go, right? So any history from black people that challenges the dominant narrative, that uh, enables, um, uh, that shines light on the history of Africans in general, African Americans in particular, that is beyond the transatlantic slave trade, well, we just don't need that. That's just not important because what, what have black people done? And, you know, I'm, I cannot help but think of, uh, there's, uh, there's uh, ruins in, um, on the continent of Africa, in Zimbabwe. The ruins are called the Great Zimbabwe. It was, um, it was this great city, this great civilization. And um, uh, when, when, some European explorers came across it, uh, they immediately concluded, even though this is like in the heart of the continent, they concluded, and they published books saying, there's no way mm -hmm. that black Africans built this city and left these ruins, right? And so there's a long history of saying that African people have contributed little to nothing to the world, actually, other than the labor of their bodies. And it is, um, I mean, it's just. <sighs> well, and just the gall of DeSantis as a white leader saying, no history can be taught unless I decide mm. that it's allowed to be taught. And your perspective is illegal and has no value. Illegal. It's illegal and it has no value unless white people decide that it has value. And and so I just think, I mean, to be able to see that is, is 
I mean, it's hell. I mean, it's apocalyptic in the sense that it is uncovering something in a really extreme, in extremely visible ways. That is a dynamic that kind of everything that happens gets run through the machine of how uncomfortable is this going to make the majority of white people? And if it's too much, we just got to let it go. Um, which I think is one reason that you can see the difference between the kind of justice and meaningful change and acceptance that um, gay people and the LGBTQIA plus community have gotten in the dominant culture because white people are part of those marginalized groups, um, which is why those marginalized groups are rightly and suddenly being recognized like, oh, here's how injustice has been, is, and has historically been perpetrated against these people. Here's how the systems as they stand are putting people's lives at risk and we can't have that and we need to change our systems, that that's happening in that community, but at a much slower rate in other communities that have been historically marginalized because, you know, when white people experience marginalization and risk, people tend to rise up and say, hell no. (laughs) And people in power seem to say like, well, that person looks like me. Therefore, what's happening to them must be unjust. And so, um, but I I do just think it's amazing that you have someone saying this whole course of study has no educational value, none. I mean, that is astonishing. Well, so I have been thinking about, I asked myself the question, what if I had the opportunity to put together my own course of study? What would I recommend to people? So, because I think, I think regardless of what the state does, people, white people, black people, all people need to be curious, Mm -hmm. need to ask questions. And so what would I recommend that people be curious about? So I, I listed a few things. Number one, Um, I think people ought to ask questions about ethnicity in the Bible. Like, I sense that when people read their Bibles, especially the Old Testament, well, even the New Testament as well, that they tend to see everyone as white, right? And movies bear that out. If you watch movies about the Bible, everybody's European. So ask questions about uh, ethnicity in the Bible. And a great book to read Black Biblical Studies by Charles B. Kofer. He is a former professor at um, ITC uh, Theological Seminary in Atlanta. Also, people need to be curious about pre-colonial Africa. They need to know about the civilizations. They need to know about kings and queens and and, and the various civilizations and empires um, on the African continent. People, and we've mentioned this uh, a little while ago, people need to know about Christianity in Africa before the Europeans arrived. If you read the book of Acts, Christianity goes to Africa before Peter is called over to the European continent. Of course, the transatlantic slave trade, of course, the civil rights movement. And I, I, I wrote in my notes, movements, because there are movements around the world um, um, and connected to that. Uh, people need to get curious about uh, the African diaspora, not just in this country, but around the world. Uh, like I'm... Like I was stunned to hear about um, a story of this this African samurai in feudal Japan, 
Like, and there's this town where they revere this man who learned the art of being a samurai. And that's part of Japanese history. I think people need to get curious about what's happening now on the continent. Um, I think the, the youngest, in terms of population, the youngest continent in the world is the continent of Africa. And lots of wonderful things are happening there. Look up um, Echo Atlantic City in um, Lagos, Nigeria. You'll be astonished uh, by what's happening there. Um, I think people need to be curious about the history of um, inventors, uh, especially African-American inventors. Like every time I, not every time, but often when I'm at a stoplight, I think of Garrett Morgan, who invented the uh, three light traffic light. Um, Elijah Morgan, steam engine uh, improvements. Uh, Madam C.J. Walker, the first African-American uh, millionaire. Lonnie Johnson, if you've ever played with a super soaker, he invented that. He worked for NASA. Uh, Mark Duncan, who was the co-inventor of IBM's original PC. Uh, Patricia Bath, um, who um, she created a new technique for um, a laser cataract surgery. I mean, people just need to get curious. And listen, in the 80s and early 90s, you could not experience the life of a black church, especially in February, Black History Month, without a point in the worship service when children would come forward and give speeches about black history, black inventors, black something that wasn't being taught in schools. And that's how that knowledge in, in, in my own life got passed on. So there was, there is much that can be done whether the, the the state says yes to it or not. Okay, so question for you. Yeah. So we both lead multi-ethnic churches that seek to be more and more yes. um, healthy and holy and in their multi-ethnicity. And we seek um, to lead and co-create with the Holy Spirit churches that have the culture of the kingdom of God. Um, so that is multicultural authentically in a way that glorifies God and human dignity um, and centers truth and also the hope and the good news of the gospel. Um, and I think it's really interesting for me as the white pastor of a multi-ethnic church to think, okay, well, we, we just had King weekend and um, we, we sang we shall overcome as a, do we talk about this last week on the podcast a little you bit? You and I talked about we, it, but we not didn't get on, the on the podcast. podcast. Right. And so in our church, there was real disagreement about whether for us to sing We Shall Overcome was honoring and centering the movement of the Holy Spirit through the work of Reverend Dr. King or whether it was tone deaf and appropriation, right? And we're coming up on Black History Month. And so as as a multi-ethnic church, particularly I think led by a white pastor, like what does it look like um, to honor that well? And also in the larger context of like, yeah, I don't want particularly to center worship on secular holidays, period, end of story. And so I think, you know, there's always this struggle about how to say, um, how to fight against the idea 
as a white person, that white church is quote normal (laughs) and anything else is default. And so we're just going to go straight down the middle, you think, but not recognizing that the middle in your perspective is white culture. So wanting to be open and welcoming and supportive of people bringing in um, what is authentic and holy and true from places that the Lord has led them previously, but also really recognizing um, the reality of whitewashing and cultural appropriation. And so to say, you know, so do you sing gospel music? Because that's a way of centering and honoring the faith um, and culture of members of our community who are black? Or do you not do that? Because it seems like as a church, you are pretending to be a black church when you're not, right? So do you do music that isn't gospel music, but then by default, and I'm not saying that this is good or right, but I'm saying that in the world, people tend to identify gospel music as black Christian music and everything else gets default identified as white Christian music. And so then if you're leading a congregation that is not a historically black church, if you do white music, you are silencing people of other ethnicities and centering white ethnicity. But if you, you know, it's it's just this perpetual thing. So like hearing as a white pastor trying to lead a multi-ethnic church and discerning all the time, what does that look like? You know, you hear people talk about, well, this is how the black church honors Black History Month. And you go like, okay, well, shouldn't we think about how we can do something like that here, but also, you know, people who have made a choice to be part of a multi-ethnic community when they could be part of a black church. No, (laughs) they are not part of a black church anymore. They shouldn't be part of a white church, but we're part of this new thing that doesn't fit in any of those categories. Like we have at certain times tried to do a watch night service here and been asked to do a watch night service by members of our community, but we can't, I mean, but you know, it's just been a difficult thing to do because you can't do a watch night service in a multi-ethnic church the way that a black church would do it. You know, so it's just hard to understand. Like on the one hand, you want to say in light of our whole congregation, our whole earlier conversation, the spirit of God is in all of these places. And so none of these things are ethnic deviations. I mean, they are all authentic. And it's really hard to know what isn't, to recognize that not everything is for everyone and what needs to stay in certain spaces. And how do you co-create something that is new? You know, it's just a really, it's a living challenge that I think sometimes you can look in the windows at churches like ours and think like, oh, that's the dream. And say like, the dream is hard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the dream leads to a lot of really uncomfortable conversations in the church of, you know, people saying, you know, I really have to wrestle with my white identity in this church that makes me really feel uncomfortable. And I don't, I don't like it. <laughs> I want to go to church that feel good. And I, you know, people of color and black people saying like, I don't like having to constantly deal with other people's spiritual growth around issues of race. That's not my job. I don't, you know, I need to be somewhere where I am nurtured and centered and that doesn't always happen here. I mean, like all of these things are very, very real and it is really hard, costly, sacrificial work. And 
the alternative to just segregate on Sunday mornings, we all know theologically is deeply, deeply problematic. Yes. So let me say a little bit about how I handle those issues. Number one, um, I acknowledge first to myself and then I begin to say to others, especially white members of the congregation, I know your culture better than you think I do. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, I step into your world so well and so thoroughly that you don't even see it. Mm-hmm. You don't even see how smoothly I adjust to who you are. I do it so well that you think it is normal. Right. And you don't see the work. Um, and so I just, I have to name that for people um, so that um, so that they can begin to, to see it. Uh, so they can begin to see that there is, um, as, as you say, some, some cost there, um, some work there. Um, lest, lest people begin to think that the way I live, move, and have being among them is the default. Mm-hmm. What I am is a missionary. What I am, I'm attempting to enter another's world for the sake of blessing, leading, serving, Healing. delivering, right? Transforming. Transforming. Um, and so, again, want want to name that. Also, too, for my own mental health, my own spiritual health, and my own growth, I'm very intentional about um, drilling down into my own history and roots just to, to stay connected, right? Three, I'm constantly monitoring other African Americans in historically white spaces. Because I know that even though in private, they will agree with me. What you said was exactly right, and I'm glad you named this person and that history. And In the moment that I name those things, it immediately reminds them of their otherness. And so I know they are doing the work of navigating the same thing I'm navigating. How thoroughly do I enter into this world to help lead (laughs) whatever these people and how much do I show um, I don't want to say difference. I don't want to say otherness. Um, Well, how how much do I reveal um, a place of cultural dissonance, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, So I I know that they are, and I'm I'm monitoring that all the time because um, I I, I want other uh, African Americans in the in the space to feel safe. So that that's those are the the top three things. So 
now that we've you know worked on those three things next for me and it's not true for everybody for me it's been beginning the process of just dropping little jewels little hints um of hey as an african-american i see this in a different way mm -hmm. i i and I want to help you see this the way I see it. Um, because by this point, I've built some trust. I've built some relationships. Um, but it is, it is a slow, slow, slow work. And when it comes to the church, at least at this point in the history of Dorada Church, I have not focused on Black History Month. I've tried to drop things throughout the year. Also, I have not focused on music. Um, that's too much of a flashpoint um, because it, if it's if it's about knowledge, then, um, for example, in the preaching moment, I'll say, "Hey, there is an African theologian by the name of Saint Augustine. Right. You've probably heard of him." And I I will point out, right. this is an African. Um, if I'm reading the text about the Ethiopian eunuch, I will say, hey, do you realize that the gospel went to Africa before right. it went to Europe? And that means black people were Christians before slave. Just to do that kind of education in a way that um, that is, it's not completely non-threatening. It rattles. It rattles. It may rattle up some folks a little bit, but what I'm doing is I'm building a foundation that will allow me later on to really um, to really talk about the, the the hard and painful things. So, so two thoughts. Um, one is some people. Not me, really not me. I, 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 but I, I really am challenged. I think in helpful, right ways. Uh, you know, love can, love can hurt. It doesn't harm, but it can hurt. So, so some people would say, um, particularly to me, if I were to name that kind of strategy, would say, hey, um, are you being strategic? Are you being subversive? Or are you reinforcing the central dynamic that something is only valid as long as people of the historic majority are comfortable, right? So you can introduce these facts, you know, so I'm, I'm just yeah. saying like, I know that that is from some people's perspective, people who I value are saying like, hey, in trying to do it in this way, you are reinforcing the very system that is damaging not just, I mean, this is what I think is so important. These systems, the damage they inflict looks different depending on the perceived color of your skin, but the sole damage is, is for all humans of whatever the hue of your skin is. Absolutely. And I think the damage is different. And I think spiritually it is not in any way to say that this is cute or okay, because it's not, but I think spiritually the damage is much graver for white people um, than for 
black people and people of color because um you 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 learn that you are are like god and so that is the spiritual death right i mean this is the the kernel of you know the the precondition that was necessary for the original sin as i read the story is eve had to think oh i know better than god i'm mm-hmm. like god mm-hmm. like i can decide whether or not i eat that you know so so i think you know that that's just the tricky thing that on the one hand you got to you got to keep people at the table. You got to keep people in community in order for God to do the work that I think God wants to do in community. But you got to do it in a. I mean, it's just it's that. I guess this is what is important to the extent that anyone listens to this podcast, to the extent that anyone cares what we think. That this is why the work of allowing the Holy Spirit to create a healthy and a holy multi ethnic community is so messy and difficult mm-hmm. because. It's just not clean. Um, yeah. In in some way, um, you and I reflect the ministry of the Apostle Paul in, in, in two different ways. So on the one hand, Paul clearly sees himself as a missionary mm-hmm. to the Gentiles, right? Even though he is thoroughly Jewish. Mm -hmm. He understands that God has uniquely equipped him to be able to build relationships, speak to, be among Gentiles, people culturally different than him. I, I think I have quite a bit of that. And at the same time, Paul turns back toward the Jewish people and is able to articulate the gospel in a way that they <laughs> to present to the Jewish people the Jewish Messiah <laughs> in a way that totally rocks their world and challenges them mm-hmm. and for some it is revelation of revelation Yes, Paul. I mean, when Paul goes on his three missionary journeys in each city, except for, I think, Athens, the first place he goes is the synagogue, right? He goes to his people and he proclaims the gospel day after day after day. And there are people who believe and there are others who hate him. (laughs) They think he is a traitor. And so, and I think that, that, that is that's a lot of your call, right? So you are a person who, um, you, you you've had your your ethnic, your racial Damascus Road experience. Let's yep. let's put it in, in 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 the in the narrative of, of Paul, and um, when you turn back to your people, there are some who say you are absolutely right, and they they get it, and they need you articulate it as a white person in a way that is just culturally relevant to other white people. And then there are others who see you as a traitor. You are upsetting this system, this thing that we have built. If, if we believe you, it means that um, we're going to have to give up some power. It means that we're going to have to go through some pain. It, it means, uh, change and transformation in a way that's going to cost me more than I want to pay. And, um, 
right? And and Paul is beaten and shipwrecked and yeah. arrested. Well, I mean, it's interesting that you say that because that was sort of the next thing that I'm thinking about is it is, I think, whether we're conscious of it or not. Um, well, one thing is just a, a huge and important thing, a huge and important step. I think we were talking about this last week. I know in person, maybe on the podcast too, is just white people are used to seeing are used to not seeing, we are used to not seeing our own culture. So it's easy for white people to see Correct. Asian culture or black culture or indigenous culture or people from the continent of India culture. Um, but we don't see white culture because we're in it and because we've been taught that it's not culture, it's humanity, it's right? Normal. And so I think the most important step that white people can take foundationally is to understand that we have a culture and that it isn't universal and that and then we can ask the question as christians followers of jesus you know looking to the early, early church in particular how do followers of christ use or exist within their cultural identities and you know paul is such an interesting example because he he very much into the end of his day claims his Jewish identity, but he has discretion and is empowered as to how he wants to live that out. And he says it specifically, like I'm a, to the Jews, I'm a Jew and to the Gentiles, I'm a Gentile. So he will walk into Gentile space and he will put down his ethnic identity as a Hebrew in order to connect with them um, around the gospel of Jesus Christ, which he sees as his eternal culture and identity. Not, you know, and so it's not that he ever casts away or disparages his identity as a Hebrew or as an Israelite, but he, he sees it as, I mean, I, you can, anyone can argue with me, but I think he sees it as secondary to his, eternal identity as a follower of Jesus Christ. And I think part of the danger that white people get in is twofold. One, we tend to conflate consciously and unconsciously um, our white culture, ironically, in two ways. We can identify it as eternal Christ culture. Yes. And... We can also sort of interpret it when we're not in... Not see it at all. Not see it at all. But also in a weird way, when we get into anti-racist space, we can identify with Paul's heritage as a Hebrew and sort of see our white culture as minority culture or as a threatened culture that needs to be protected. And so we just, I think as white people, have a really difficult time knowing how to live as white, as Christians who happen to be white people and to understand our ethnic heritage and identity as, as a tool, a canvas upon which the gospel can be painted and not as, um, not as a liability that needs to be centered and also not as a destiny that other people need to achieve. And it's just really hard work. White people, we don't know how to talk about whiteness um, 
And I think to your earlier point, when you said like, I know your culture better than you think I do. I think, you know, people of color and black people know white culture better than white people do because we often have been able to control our world in such a way that like with respect Governor DeSantos, we can just shut down and silence any voices that bear witness to the truth of the destructive aspects of white culture. So we can just dismiss them as invalid and not listen to them. And so then we don't even know our own cultural identity in a way um, like Paul was able to talk really clearly about both the beauty and holiness of the law and also talk about how the law had become an occasion of sin. And that wasn't him hating his own people or his own culture. It was him, I think, having a having a a theology, a theological understanding of the limits of human creatures. And, you know, I do I do unapologetically confess that I believe that Jesus Christ is the way. And I don't you know, people can impose what they think that means if they want to. Like, to me, that is not a statement of exclusivity. And it is certainly not a declarative statement where I'm saying Jesus Christ is the way and only what I recognize and identify as Christ is validly part of that way. I don't think that. Um, But I do think for me as a Christian, like it's the context through which I understand the healing and wholeness and redemption of humanity. And I guess, last thing I'll say, a key part of that is Jesus Christ is a reconciler. And so this, you know, as a human being who follows Jesus, I think reconciliation is a core part of the manifestation of the glory of God. And so I feel like whether we like it or not, if we are fully surrendered to Jesus, I think that's Jesus's uh, agenda. And I freely admit how deeply I benefit from that as a white person (laughs) about being um, the recipient of a grace that I do not deserve. I do not deserve. Um, And I don't have to speak for anyone but myself, but I mean, I understand. Anyway, sorry, that was the last thing. I was well, say. if I were um, a great psychologist, a great therapist, and I had the mass of white people in my office on the couch, <laughs> right? One of my observations would be a deep resistance to seeing, accepting, confessing, releasing, receiving grace for guilt. Correct. Right? It is like, it's like the person who is cheating on their spouse, but accuses the spouse of cheating. Right. <laughs> it's, right? It, there, there, is a, there is a deep um, psychological, maybe not psychological, just this deep um, uh, current um, to see yourselves as um, guiltless or um, like any any hint of 
criticism, any hint of historic guilt is met with this um, <laughs> like, defensiveness. Well, it, it's 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 this like nuclear meltdown of, but I'm a good person. Right. You are beloved of the Lord indeed all day, every day. Yes, that does not change. And what is also true. <laughs> right. Right. And again, and we've said this so many times, it's so deeply ironic that white Christians are so resistant. To, so many white Christians are so resistant to this conversation because of all the people in the world, we ought to have a framework for confronting sin and taking well, sin and, seriously. And, what, and a deep long practice of Western church is the confession of sin and the forgiveness of sin. But a deep way that that has been colonized is to say these sins that we yes. confess are only individual, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is completely flying in the face of the entire Hebrew Bible, yep. where people are called to collectively yep. repent, that the sins we confess are only individual, and that the sins that we confess often are only um, individual acts of violence or sexual purity yep. sins, right? Yep. So if we can convince people that these are the only things that matter to God, then the systems of oppression and justice and injustice can remain undisturbed, which is just deeply ironic when you read scripture. Oh, and also you and the spiritual sin of worshiping God in the wrong way, right? And which is ironic because when you read the prophets, when they are calling the what the people <laughs> to repentance, what they are calling them to repentance for is not worshiping in the wrong way, but living in the wrong way. And their living is not oh, you know, you're a whore, meaning you're having sex with the wrong people. It's you are whoring in your spirituality. You are worshiping multiple gods. You're pledging allegiance to the God of your ancestors in the sanctuary, but then you're walking out of the building and not living according to the covenant that makes demands upon you in terms of the limits of your acquisition, about hospitality to strangers, about centering the needs of the vulnerable. And you are ignoring all of those things like King Ahab saying, I want this vineyard. It belongs to um, Naboth, but I want it. I'm king. And his wife, Jezebel, says, well, you're king. Effing take it. What's the matter with you? You have the power. You have the ability. Just you are the it. ultimate authority. Do what seems right in your own eyes. And then I love how instead of making that story about the abuse of power, we make it a story about how women should shut the F up That's because he would have been fine if it weren't for that hissing hussy, right? And we That's just exactly have right. all these wonderful ways that we like take the, tell people that the story is only allowed to mean one thing and often a thing that is in direct opposition to the actual truth of the story. But if you follow the power interests and the money interest, you'll see that interpreting that story in that way allows people to maintain the power and the resources that they have. And I, I think I've said this before on, I just am, I wish I could remember who said it. It was certainly not me. Um, we're talking about reparations. I was reading an article about reparations and they were just saying, it is interesting that white people believe that it is perfectly legal to inherit wealth, but immoral to inherit guilt. And particularly when the wealth you inherit comes from the 
actions of your ancestors that we all now recognize were wrong, but we feel completely legally entitled to that money, but completely legally shielded from the responsibility of repair. And that's, I mean, that is an interesting belief set when you pull it out into the light and just look at it. So much of the work that I think from the outside looking in that you face as a white pastor is to convince other white people that the mass of humanity that's not white. The global majority. The global majority, indeed, is not waiting or willing or even thinking about doing to white people what white people have done to others. I think that is a fear. Correct, That if there is a confession of guilt, the world is not waiting for payback. The other part of your work is also convincing white people that their health and wholeness their growth, their blessedness is on this particular path. Their right. their their belovedness is not at stake. Right. Well, and I think saying to white people, there's something that's better than being in charge. Yeah. And that's being in community. Oh, that's good. And you cannot that's good. be that's in good. charge and in community. Yeah. You gotta pick yeah. one or the other. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's just, you know, I'm doing this work on Trinity and understanding Trinity is is a different way of understanding how leadership and relationship works in the beloved community. It's not a hierarchy. Yeah. And and for black people in white spaces, our healing is in the area of number one, you do not have to be perfect in order to be equal, right? Mm-hmm. There's that. And you you do not have to prove your worth and value. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think maybe this is enough for today. I had some other things to talk about, but it's all uh, in line with uh, with what we've been saying. So I'll save it Very good. for another day. Um, but thank you all so much for listening. Um, oh, shoot. Here it is, the moment when I once again realized that I'm doing <laughs> If you want to find out more about what God is doing at God's Church at Derrida Presbyterian, which is D-E-R-I-T-A, you can go to their website, which is www.deridachurch.faithlifesites.com. You got it. Oh, that makes me so happy. That's sites with an S, just two S's, as a matter of fact. You can worship with them at 11 a.m. because they have some fire preachers over there. Um, You can check out their YouTube channel or their podcast, the Derida Church YouTube channel or podcast, um, and catch up on messages. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at God's Church at The Grove Presbyterian, you can go to our website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You can check out our podcast or our YouTube channel. Look for the green tree because there are lots of groves. Um, Thank you all. Oh, you can worship with us at 10 a.m. on Sunday where the dress code is wear clothes. Um, And uh, thank you so much for listening and we'll talk to you next week.